And please turn with me in the Word of God to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We have completed the studies in the Minor Prophets uh, with the final one last week, and so I want to just draw your attention to this passage. The Lord brought it before me as a, uh, a piece of literature that we want to focus on this morning in the Word of God, Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read together. I welcome you. Welcome those online. Pray that the Lord will be with us as we meet together around the Word. So Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 1, we'll read from there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings, with twain He covered His face, and with twain He covered His feet, and with twain He did fly. And one cried on to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me." Amen. The Lord will bless the reading of these verses to our hearts. Now, the closing words of verse 5 are truly very gripping words. Those words are, For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I must say those words really got a hold of my mind and heart as I was reading through this chapter just the other day. And from that experience of the Word of God here gripping my own soul. I believe that the Lord had given me a word for this Bible class, even here this morning. Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The irony of that statement is that Isaiah saw this heavenly King at the time of the death of the earthly King, namely Uzziah, King of Judah. We notice that in verse 1. It refers there, uh, in these words to his death, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. Now, Uzziah was a godly man. In the latter years of his reign, he did transgress by attempting to go into the temple and burn incense, offer up incense, which was, of course, the role of the priest. No one else was permitted to go in there and offer incense. Uzziah sought to do that. For that transgression, the Lord smote him with leprosy, and most likely that hastened his death. And Uzziah, King Uzziah, died around the year 740 B.C. And so this was a critical moment in Isaiah's experience as a major prophet 
of God. No doubt he felt very, very keenly the passing of Uzziah, because as I've said, the king was basically a good man, a godly man. He had reigned well. You will see that when you read through his uh, story in the book of either Second Kings or Second Chronicles. He was a man who reigned very, very well. And so, undoubtedly, Isaiah the prophet, who ministered alongside Uzziah, and the two of them were companions in many ways, as I say, felt deeply the passing of this man. But with his removal by death, Isaiah was shown another king, an infinitely more important and more powerful monarch than Uzziah. He saw a king who was the Lord of hosts. Now, the identity of this heavenly monarch here in Isaiah chapter 6 is crystallized for us in John 12. And I want you to turn to John 12 with me, and we'll look at some verses there at this stage, John 12, and we'll come to verse number 37. just want you to look at that verse with me, John 12, 37. It says, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. A little narrative starts here in verse 37. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about His ministry. It's about His miracles. And that narrative runs down to verse number 41. And in those verses, John 12, 37 to 41, we have two of Isaiah's prophecies quoted by John the Apostle as he writes at this stage in his gospel. Now, the first of those quotations is, uh, just after what's said in verse 37, the first of the quotations is in verse number 38. And so, just read verse 37 again with me. It says, Though he had done so many miracles, that is Christ, before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah, and that, of course, is the New Testament Greek form of the name Isaiah in the Old Testament, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? And most of you, I'm sure, will know, probably all of you, that those words are taken from Isaiah 53, that great chapter that begins that way, Lord, who has believed our report, and so on. And so, here John quotes those words, and he applies them uh, in terms of the unbelief of the Jews in the Lord's day concerning the Savior. And so, they had rejected the Lord. They had rejected Him very openly and very vehemently. And so, that rejection of Christ by the Jews in His day is supported. That is, the fact of it is supported by these words that are taken from Isaiah chapter 53 that are quoted here in John 12, 38. So, that's one prophecy that is now in view. There's a second one in, uh, when you come to verse 39 and on through into verse 40. Verse 39 is introductory again to what John then quotes from Isaiah 6 this time, where we read this morning. And so, if you look at Isaiah, or sorry, John 12, 39, it says this, Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah, or Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes, and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, 
and I should heal them. Now, the the words in verse 40 are quoted from Isaiah 6, where our reading was found earlier. Now, please bear with me. I want you to turn back to Isaiah 6 at this point and look at verse number 10. We didn't actually read this verse earlier, but I just bring you to it now. Isaiah 6, verse 10, and it says, Make the heart of this people fat, and make their their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. And so just note those words, and they're now quoted here by John in Isaiah 12 and verse 40. But why I draw your attention to Isaiah 6, verse 10 is this. When you read Isaiah 6, verse 10, you'll find that it closes with just a general statement about these people uh, shutting their eye or their ears been heavy, shutting their eyes and so forth, understanding with their heart and convert and be healed. The point is that John uses those words now in John 12 and verse 40 to show that what Isaiah had predicted now falls on the Jews of the Lord's day, these people who rejected him who would not believe his witness or his report. And what verse 40 is all about in John 12 is John using this by inspiration of the Spirit to refer to what is called judicial blindness. Look at how John 12, 40 reads. He hath blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes or understand with their heart and be converted, and I should heal them. And the healing there, the conversion and the healing there, of course, has to do with being saved. This is a solemn, serious verse, because it's telling us that those Jews in the Lord's day, uh, when He was on this earth, who rejected Him, were stricken with judicial blindness. God blinded their eyes, their hearts, hardened their hearts, so that they would not understand, they would not believe in Christ. It was a judgment on them for their rejection of Christ. And of course, that still happens. When people reject the Lord again and again and again, they at least run the risk of being judicially blinded. And furthermore, they do pass a line in life where that judicial blindness falls, and they will never be saved. We've got to understand this. This is what the Word of God is showing us here. So, when you look at these two passages and parallel them, you find that John uses Isaiah's prophecies in two ways. First of all, from Isaiah 53, to show that the people of Christ, they didn't actually believe Him when He preached. And then secondly, to show that because of that rejection of the Lord, they were stricken with spiritual blindness. Now, having explained all that, just look at the end of verse 40, and notice how It differs from Isaiah 6 and verse 10. Here it says in John 12, 40, Be converted, and I should heal them. Now, who is that? That, of course, is the Lord. Because if you go back up to verse 37, it says, Though He, that's Christ, had done many miracles, John 12, 37, yet they believed not on Him. And so, from that point onwards, this passage is giving us what the Lord does. And that means at the end of verse 40, it says, and I should heal them. And so, at the end of 
And just let me tell you this, you don't have to turn back at this moment, but in John 6, verse 10, or sorry, Isaiah 6, 10, it simply ends this way, and be healed. But here the Holy Spirit applies it very definitely to Christ, His words, and He says that because of their blindness, or because of their rejection of Him, they're blind that they're hardened, and I will not heal them. Now, who is this? Well, look at verse 41 now. This is what, this is what I was getting you to. Verse 41 of John 12. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Who? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's what verse 41 is saying. These things said Isaiah, or Isaiah. That's in Isaiah chapter 6 where we read. Then it says, when he saw his glory and spake of him. And so what you find is that John refers to the narrative in Isaiah chapter 6. I want you to turn back there now, please. And led by the Spirit, the Apostle John applies Isaiah 6 to Jesus Christ. And it's actually specifically written, these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him, spake of the Lord Jesus. Now, I do all this just to show you, well, maybe a couple of things, uh, to show you how the Bible uh, uses its own writings in order to interpret one passage along with another. And that's what we found here. John 12, given the inspiration of the Spirit, interprets Isaiah 6 for us. And so that shows you and me how to use the Bible. If you read a passage and you want to get help to understand it, you look up the cross-references. You go to uh, some other place in the Bible where maybe the same word is used or where the same name is used, whatever it might be, and you see what is said over there compared with where you are actually reading, and you bring the two together. And that's interpreting Scripture by Scripture. That is one of the cardinal rules of seeking to come to an understanding of the Word of God. And so we see it here. But the point is, for our purposes today, as we look at John chapter 6, we now have the identity of the king in verse 1. I, I brought before us, what does it say again in Isaiah 6, 1? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And then verse 5, those words that I said, the end of verse 5, that really gripped my own soul. Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Remember what John says? These things said Isaiah, when he saw his glory, the glory of the King, and spake of him. And he's referring to Isaiah 6. And so, in this remarkable use of Scripture, in Isaiah 6 and John 12, the Spirit of God pays clear testimony to the deity of our Savior. If you're ever going to deal with, say, a Jehovah's Witness, if you get them to listen to you, and just take them to Isaiah 6 and John 12, and simply show them what, I, what John 12, 41 states, that what John, or what Isaiah saw here was about Jesus Christ, and then bring them here, and you find that the Lord Jesus Christ is called the King, the Lord of hosts. Well, you might, you might, and only might get through, because their hearts are so hard, 
and impervious that it's just about impossible to get through to those members of that awful cult. But anyhow, here's how we prove the deity of the Lord, as well as the fact that the one whom Isaiah saw is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But the question is, what exactly did Isaiah see about Christ as is revealed to us in, in Isaiah chapter 6? What, did, what exactly did he see? Well, Isaiah's vision was essentially a vision of the Lord's holiness. That's what he saw. And you will know the story here, the account here in Isaiah 6. When he saw this vision, he cried out about what? About his own sin. In verse number uh, 5, Woe is me! For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And how did he know that? And how did he feel that? Well, he gives you the answer. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He felt his own sin, and he saw the sin of the nation because he got a vision of the holiness of Christ. And it moved him deeply. You see, at this stage... Isaiah is already a prophet. He has been ministering to some degree already. And he is being sent by the Lord to the nation of Judah. If you read the very first verse of his book, he mentions certain kings, and they're all kings of Judah. And he therefore identifies his ministry. Read through the whole book, and you'll find that he's talking to the people of Judah in those days when he ministered. As I say, around 740, that period of time, B.C. And so he's been sent to Judah to warn them of the coming captivity, of the, of the moving of the Babylonians into the land. And they will destroy Jerusalem, and they will raise the temple to the ground, and they will take uh, many, many thousands of Jews way down into captivity in our north into captivity in Babylon. And so he's been sent to warn the nation of this judgment. And at this stage, he's given this vision, the year that King Uzziah died. That was, a, as I said earlier, a critical point. Because after Uzziah, there was king after king, mostly in Judah, who were ungodly men, who had no time for the Lord and so on. And all of those kings, and especially Manasseh, although God saved Manasseh in old age, before he died, he dealt with Manasseh in mercy. But the point is, Manasseh's legacy couldn't be erased in terms of how he impacted the nation through his worship of idols and his murder of people. He made Jerusalem run with blood. And so, after Uzziah, things just went downhill. There was one godly man, well, one or two more. Perhaps there was Hezekiah, and then there was Josiah, and they saw little revivings in their days, but God had determined to destroy Judah. And Isaiah sent to warn the nation about this. And remember, he went to them about 150 years before these things all came upon them. That's the time span. He ministered, as I said, around 740, around that period. And the first incursion into the land by Nebuchadnezzar came in the year 605 B.C. So it was 
uh, roughly speaking, 140, 150 years uh, before that all happened that Isaiah prophesied and predicted. In fact, it is firmly believed that Isaiah was martyred in the days of Manasseh for his faithfulness to God and so forth. But anyhow, this is why he's given a vision of divine holiness, that he would be equipped to show Judah the righteousness of the Lord in dealing with them in their sin or because of their sin and taking them away into Babylonian captivity. So Isaiah was shown the essence of the holiness of the Lord. And I just want to draw a number of points out of this passage that underline God's holiness. You see, brethren and sisters, we must always keep in mind that because God is holy, God will deal with sin. Whether it's personal sin or national sin or church sin, God will deal with sin. And so that's what's been shown to us here. And I want just to show you from these verses something of the highlights, something of the outstanding marks of the holiness of God. Number one, it is a personal holiness. If you look at verse number three, notice what it says, And one cried unto another, this is the seraphim, one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so those words signify the personal holiness of being, of nature, that essentially belongs to the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Catch the emphasis of those words. What they're really saying is that the Lord's holiness is not a holiness that is attached to Him or that's received into His being at some point or other, but rather God's holiness belongs to Him. It belongs to His nature. It is therefore a personal holiness. Understand what I mean. The Bible teaches us that the holiness of God, like every other quality of God, God's holiness is not created. It's uncreated. It belongs to Him. And so God is eternally holy. He's infinitely holy. He is unchangeably holy. And that's what those words are actually saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The word for holy means separate. And what it's saying is that God's holiness, therefore, is separate from the holiness of others. You take the holy angels, or you take people whom God saves, and He begins to work holiness in their lives and in their characters. He changes them. He saves them from their sin. He turns around their whole direction, and He makes them new creatures. Isn't that right? Isn't that what the Bible teaches us? That is God making men holy, fitting them to live in heaven, which is holy beyond our minds even to understand. And He says, none that defileth shall ever enter in. So men must become holy before they go to heaven or before they're fit to enter heaven. But the point is, the holiness of an angel was created in the creation overall of that creature or that being, any holy angel. The same with a saint of God, a child of God. The holiness is wrought on us by the Holy Spirit when God saves us and brings us to know Him and to understand our own sin. But you see, God's holiness is different. 
It is a holiness that is personal in that sense that it was not created, for God is uncreated. So it belongs to His being from all eternity. As I'm showing you in this manner, it is taught that men are devoid of personal holiness. As they come into the world, as they live in this world, there is no man who can be called a holy man in and of himself. But you will know that different religions have their holy men, and they call them holy men. And whatever they may fully mean by that term, it's a misnomer. It is not applicable to any man because there is no man who has a personal holiness any man who becomes truly holy, and that can only be as a result of God's grace, becomes holy because of the operation of God on him and in him. And so God's personal holiness teaches us this, that sinful men are devoid of personal holiness, that every person born into the world, part, of course, from Christ, but every other person falls short of the glory of God. You take the words I've just quoted, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's saying that no man has a personal holiness that gives him a standing with God, that makes him acceptable with the God. None, not one. And the words there, uh, come short of the glory of God, the word glory there signifies the divine standard of true holiness and men come short of that standard. And so, that means, therefore, that because of God's own personal holiness, and the fact that no man has that personal holiness by nature, that means that God can't be anything else but angry with the sins that are openly practiced in human society. If you take Romans 1.18, if you want to turn it up, that's fine, but just listen to what it says. Romans 1.18, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And that's an important verse. It comes after those great statements where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the of the gospel, verse 16, comes after that statement about the righteousness of God being revealed from heaven. That is Christ's righteousness, the way of righteousness, the only way by which we can be justified on the ground of Christ's righteousness. And then it goes on to say, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why the two nouns there, ungodliness and unrighteousness, would it not be enough simply to say against the ungodliness of men? Why does it add then and unrighteousness? Well, here's the reason. The word ungodliness refers to man's inward nature. He is ungodly. And the word unrighteousness refers to his manner of living. Because man is ungodly by nature, therefore he's unrighteous in practice. How he lives, how he behaves, how he thinks, etc. And all of that truth about man is seen 
as we notice from Isaiah himself, it's seen when man is measured against the personal holiness of God. Remember what I said or drew, drew to your attention? When Isaiah had this vision, when he saw the Lord and all his holiness, and he heard the cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, what did he cry? Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. Unclean lips. Why, why are they mentioned? Why not unclean hands or whatever? Because it's used as a symbol, that is, as lips, of what comes out of a man. You see, it's out of your mouth that you speak, etc. And so, as it were, your lips are the vehicle, the channel, by which what's really in you comes out. You see, the Lord says that by our words we will be justified or will be condemned. So if a man is an habitual liar, if a man is an habitual blasphemer, if a man is an, an habitual teller of filthy jokes, what does that mean? It means that inwardly he is rotten. There's no holiness in there. There's, no, there's nothing in there but uncleanness, and therefore his lips are classified as being unclean. And what is it that comes out of the lips of God? All that is pure. Every word of God is pure. And so, do you see how God's personal holiness has such wide ramifications and application? It's a personal holiness. Then, look again at Isaiah 6, the Lord's holiness. This is, what, this is what Isaiah saw, you see. This is the whole point. He says, I saw, I saw the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, and so forth. And what he saw was the, the holiness of the Lord, and it impacted him, that personal holiness. But it's also a preeminent holiness. In John 12, 41, and we've looked at that, we learn that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ in this vision, because it says there, these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory. But what he saw was his holiness. So what does that mean? It means that the glory of the Lord actually is the holiness of the Lord, or the other way around. What is the holiness of the Lord? It's a display of the glory of the Lord. You see, whenever... Whenever the Lord came down on the tabernacle in the wilderness, for example, uh, what happened or what was seen when He came down? Because He did come down. And you'll know the, the narrative there in, in, uh, in Leviticus and Numbers and so on, only when the Lord came down upon the tabernacle did the Israelites stop on their journeys. And then when the Lord went off the tabernacle, when the cloud uh, was lifted from off the tabernacle, only then did they march. But what was the form of the cloud? Was it an atmospheric cloud that we see in the heavens around us? And the Lord took one of those clouds and set it on the tabernacle? No, it was the Lord Himself, and He came in a form that appeared as a cloud, but it is referred to over and over again as a cloud of glory. And whenever the Israelites saw it, they were stricken with the sense of the preeminent holiness 
of the Lord. In other words, Isaiah says again, or John tells us in his rendering, this he said when he saw his glory. And so, the glory of Christ that Isaiah had seen was the glory of His holiness. So look again here at verse number 3. And notice how that comes out. Isaiah 6, 3. One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The whole earth is full of His glory. So in verse 1, this holy being is seated on the throne. He's exalted. He's majestic in His appearance and His position. And John tells us here that the whole earth is full of His glory, and that's attached to those words, holy, 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 thrice holy, perfectly holy, but preeminently holy. And so what we are seeing, therefore, is the Lord's holiness is not only personal, but it's preeminent, which means this, that He will not lower His standards, His moral standards, or His spiritual standards, to suit men. He will not do that. You see, His holiness is preeminent in the sense that He cannot accommodate or tolerate the sins of men. That's what man does. That's what we're all inclined to do. Tolerate sin, put up with it in our own lives. We don't mortify it. We don't uh, crucify it as we're commanded to do. And of course, that's another subject altogether, but the Bible does say to us, mortify therefore the members of your body, or crucify the old man with the affections and lusts thereof. But we're inclined to tolerate it. That's, still, that's because we still have that fallen nature within us. But the true Christian is endeavoring nonetheless by the help of God, by the application of the Savior's merit and precious blood to deal with sin. That's the mark of a true Christian. But men in general, well, they don't think that way, do they? Sin to them is fun. Sin to them is, uh, they think, satisfying. Sin to them is something to plunge into with every ounce of your energy and give all your time to it and live as much as you can in the ways of sin. And so man obviously tolerates sin. Because to him, holiness doesn't even figure, means nothing. Rather, ungodly men will mock holiness. They will laugh at the Christian who lives a godly life. They will make fun of the child of God. And this comes out, doesn't it, in the workplace. And you'll be asked questions, or maybe at school or college, now why don't you go out with us to that party on Friday night? Why don't you come and have a drink with us? Why do you not watch those movies that we love to watch? And so the Christian is challenged because a true believer doesn't want those things and seeks to eschew evil, as Peter says. And that's a very graphic word, by the way, where Peter says or speaks or writes of eschewing evil. That word eschew, originally the, the Greek word it comes from uh, the behavior of a horse. And if I don't know if you've ever ridden a horse or not, you might know something about a horse. If a horse has been ridden down the road and there's something that startles it, 
maybe a paper bag or whatever, the horse will move to the side. And that's where the word astew comes from. And it's a very graphic word. And so, the Bible says the Christian astews evil, but the men of the world do not do that because holiness to them is nothing. But you see, God's holiness is only personal, it is preeminent. Then it's a perfect holiness. Well, I've touched on that, but just take those words again in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the ones who utter that cry are called the seraphim. You read of them in verse 2, and then this is them in verse 3. One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, the seraphim, I put it that way because you don't need to say seraphims. Uh, I know our authorized version translates it that way just for, for clarification, but this is actually a Hebrew word taken straight into the English language. And in Hebrew, the signification of a word being plural is that it ends in I am. And so the, the singular would be seraph. The plural is seraphim. So that's just a little an aside there. But anyway, it's the seraphim. Now, the word for seraphim is a word that's very, very graphic. It signifies fire. The, the word literally means burning or fiery ones. And so the seraphim were a certain rank of angelic beings. Uh, you see, there are ranks among the, 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 the angels, the seraphim, the cherubim, and so on. You will know, I'm sure, that uh, Lucifer himself or Satan was originally uh, a holy angel. He and indeed is believed that he was the chief of the angels. And so that's who the seraphim are. They're a rank of angel. And they have a very exalted level of holiness themselves. But listen to them. These holy beings, these creatures, that who, the word seraphim meaning burning or fiery ones, who have never sinned, who have no propensity to sin ever, because they're called the elect angels in 1 Timothy chapter 5. They will never sin, they will never fall, yet they realize that their holiness, as I said earlier, is a created holiness in contrast with the Lord's. And it's their cry that we read in verse 3, holy, holy, holy. Do you remember, and I've just alluded to this really, by referring to, to Lucifer or Satan. Do you remember that Lucifer sinned in heaven? He was an angel. He aspired to be higher than God. It was pride that brought him down. But that is where he sinned. He fell from heaven. The Bible makes that absolutely clear. He was cast out because sin was found in him. Now, that's a mystery. Mystery. Uh, we can't explain that. But we believe what the Bible says. We believe the record of Scripture. But the point is, these seraphim would have known Satan because the angels were all made at the one time. They were made, of course, during the six days of creation, but that's another subject but they would have known Satan personally. 
And they'd have seen him been cast down. And they would have been indignant because he blasphemed their God, their Holy One, the One who's perfectly holy. And therefore, they are close to the throne here. That's what John, or sorry, Isaiah sees. He sees the Lord sitting upon a throne. And it says in verse 2, above it, that means actually above the, the, the throne stood the seraphim. The thought there is that they're round about the throne of God, these seraphim. And the thought out of that is that they're close to the throne to magnify the perfect holiness of the Christ who sat on that throne. What does that teach us today? It teaches you and me that we should desire to uphold the holiness of the Lord or magnify the holiness of the Lord, that perfect holiness. It should grieve us when men by their blasphemy and by their wickedness attempt to besmirch the the holiness of the Lord. That should grieve us. If you're a true believer, you, you, you will know what happens when you hear somebody take the Lord's name in vain. It will be like a stab into your soul. It will annoy you. Or when people curse generally, but especially when they take the Lord's name in vain. Or when they laugh at His law. When men pass laws that are contrary to the law of God, it grieves the Christian. In a physical sense, at that point, there's nothing we can do about it uh, in the sense of, of changing it. But we can pray to the God whose law they are they're breaking. Is that not what the psalmist does? He said, It's time for thee to work, for they have made void thy law. He says in Psalm 94, or he speaks, writes there in Psalm 94, about those who frame mischief by a law. And he says they will not have fellowship, or God will not have fellowship with the throne of iniquity. Where's the throne of iniquity today? It's, it's seated in a government that passes these laws. Laws that legislate abortion, laws that legislate same-sex marriage, laws that legislate whatever is immoral, that's where you find the throne of iniquity. And there they are, the beginning of every session in Westminster, and they have their prayers. And that's only a tradition. That comes down from time immemorial, and it's there by law. Some might think it's a good thing. I'm not so sure. Because they they have their prayers, and then they pass a law that blasphemes God. The whole thing is a farce. No, my dear friend, God's holiness is perfect. And if we've got a heart that knows the Lord, we want to be like John the Baptist. He was a burning and a shining light. And he lived for his God. And finally today, in closing here, his holiness is a powerful holiness. Look at verse 4. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. In the presence of the holiness of God and the presence of the seraphim and the one that actually cried, holy, holy, holy. Here's the power of God's holiness. The posts of the door moved. 
At the, excuse me, at the voice of him that cried, the house was filled with smoke. The temple shook and trembled. Now, that's a reminder of what happened at Sinai. Exodus 20, when the Lord came down on Mount Sinai, the mount shook as the Lord descended. And actually, let me say to you, the one who came down on Mount Sinai was Christ. That's clearly proved in Scripture. I don't have time to go to that today. But the same person who's in Isaiah 6 sitting on the throne is the person who came down on Mount Sinai. But the mount shook at the revelation of the God of holiness. You see, brethren and sisters, there's no escape from the holiness of God. God's holiness will shake. It will unseat. It will remove sinners someday when God sees fit for that to be executed. And it will bring them down to hell forevermore. That day is coming. That is why when you read of the second coming of the Lord, it is described in various places as an event that will cause a shaking. The whole universe is going to shake. One of the most graphic places, you'll turn quickly in closing, is Hebrews 12. And I only can draw your attention to these two verses. Hebrews 12 and verse 25, it says, See that ye refuse not him. Hebrews 12, 25, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, and that was at Mount Sinai, how much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And so those words are telling us of how the Lord shakes universally. The holiness of God is a powerful holiness. Whenever the Lord appears, in other words, at the end of time, when He comes again, I mean, visibly, personally, bodily, and He emits the shout that Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians 4, and the trumpet sounds, and there'll be the voice of the archangel as well, there will be a shaking across the whole universe, but focused on this earth that will cause the stoutest sinner to cry to the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and hide them from Him that sits on the throne, from His face. Oh, let us take these things to heart today and let us Seek to serve the Lord ourselves for His glory with an eye to His holiness. And may the Lord be with us even as we meet on today and the rest of the day's meetings as we meet before a holy God. Let us bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the word that we have considered and all that it says to us. And we pray that Thou wilt bless it to our hearts. We thank Thee, Lord, for how Scripture does interpret Scripture how we're given understanding through Thy Word of Thee and of Thy glory. And we ask, O Lord, that Thou will take this truth of Thine and write it on our minds and bless it to our souls and help us this day to magnify Thee. 
We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake and for his eternal praise. Amen.